Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. My son Elias, seven years young, he loves to collect yarmulkes. Every time I go to Israel or when he comes with me, we always go to one of our favorite yarmulke shops and he picks out yarmulkes that he wants. And he has a bunch of different avenues of yarmulkes that he loves to wear. So he has some random ones like a watermelon yarmulke and then some superhero yarmulkes like you would expect from a seven-year-old. He's got Superman and Dash and Recently, Elias started playing the guitar, so he has a guitar yarmulke. Occasionally, occasionally we watch him, let him watch Family Guy, so he has Brian the dog. But he also has Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and he's got Super Mario. Every Monday, he likes to wear different yarmulkes of teams that won in football, and he has every single NFL team. He's got the Texans and the Vikings. He's got the Broncos, the Jets, and the Giants. Every team you can imagine. He's got almost every basketball team and most, most of the baseball teams as well. All displayed here and a handful of college ones that are meaningful to him too. I grew up in Michigan. I didn't go there, but he likes to wear a Michigan one. And my wife went to Emory. He has an Emory one. And then he even does some promotional stuff as well. Like he's got a Fanta one. He's got a Sprite one, an M&M's, Coca-Cola, you name it. And he likes to wear them just based on his outfit for the day, and how he's feeling. And what I keep trying to remind Elias of is that at seven years young, he knows that he's supposed to wear a yarmulke, and he has fun doing promotional work sometimes with these yarmulkes. But what I remind him of is why he wears a yarmulke. It's the same reason that Christian clergy wear yarmulkes. We wear yarmulkes not to only remind us that God is above us, but it's to remind us of how we're supposed to behave. It's a governor. It governs our behavior. Imagine you're walking through life and someone put a giant placard the size of this sea door on your chest, just hanging around your neck. And on it, it said your name, it said your address, and it said your employment, where you worked and what you did. And everywhere you went, from the gas station to the airport to the grocery store, people knew who you were. Because even if you thought you were incognito, you weren't. It said your religion and your background and who your family was. Do you think it might change your behavior when there's an issue at the grocery store or there's a problem at the airport or you're not getting the service you want at the gas station? I bet it would. There are times when I wear my yarmulke outside of the synagogue, outside of my home, and times when I don't. What I notice is that sometimes my behavior is different. I want it to be the same all the time. But if I'm at the airport and I'm having trouble with a ticket agent, I find that my temper is much cooler when I'm wearing my yarmulke because I feel like I'm representing the Jewish people. I feel the same thing when I wear a yarmulke and I'm at a cashier and she gives me $50 change and I'm only supposed to get 20. I go out of my way to tell her, you gave me too much change. Why? Because I want to represent the Jewish people. The idea of the yarmulke governing our behavior is that God is always watching us. And what we do is always being judged by God. And if we take off our yarmulke, maybe our neighbors aren't judging us anymore, 
But God still sees our behavior. And we can't run and hide from those moments. Today, we have a different thing that is monitoring all of our behavior. And it's called a smartphone. There's not a one of us in here that doesn't have a smartphone or a family member who doesn't have one. Which means that all of us have the capability anywhere and everywhere we go to send texts that can become viral, to put them on all types of different social media, but even more frightening, we can capture pictures and video that we never could before that allows us to get a snapshot in time, some positive and some painful, of people and their behaviors. And it allows us to judge in the role of God when they do that. A lot of times, we're taking pictures of people at a time that's not their most flattering. A time that if they were Jewish, they would take off their yarmulke. And if they're not Jewish, they would take off that figurative placard I spoke about so they could have a sense of anonymity and hide. But in an age of video cameras and smartphones, we don't get the opportunity to hide the same way. All of us are responsible one for the next. We're responsible for our behavior and how it's judged. If ever, ever, there was a case of this, it was in what happened just a few weeks ago, I think it was exactly one week ago, in University of Oklahoma's campus. There, some rowdy, drunken fraternity boys got on a bus and started singing a terrible chant about African-American people and excluding them from participating in their fraternity ever, including in their hymn that they sang with glee, the idea that black people would sooner hang from a tree than join the fraternity of SAE, which is disgusting and reprehensible. What made it so painful for these two boys who were the ringleaders of this instance is that it was captured on a smartphone through video and literally within hours it had infected the entire country in a viral way that all of us were subject to this disgusting hate and this painful moment. Now I want to be unambiguous and I want to be clear. What those boys did was indeed disgusting. The language that they used and the chant that they were part of and encouraged others to sing is antithetical to what it is to be inclusive. It is bigoted behavior. It is racist behavior. And it's wrong. And alcoholism and being rowdy and being on a bus is no excuse for such hatred. End of sentence. But here's the question. Should these boys who as a result of what they did and were captured in the moment in which they took off their yarmulke, should they be punished in a way that makes us use indelible ink? My same boy, seven years old, is only allowed to do his homework in pencil. And the reason for all of us who have kids that have ever been seven know kids make mistakes, just like adults do. And on the other side of that pencil is the most important operative device for those kids. It's called an eraser. And it reminds them that by the mistakes they make, they are not permanent. They're mistakes in which they learn from. 
But today, with video cameras, with Facebook, with Google, that archives and documents each and every one of our moves positively and negatively, we are living in a world of indelible ink without erasers that makes all the transgressions and mishaps that any one of us do and are captured by living forever and ever. So why do I share this with you? Because Judaism's core tenet is tshuva. It's the idea of asking for forgiveness. In the Babylonian Talmud, Masechet Sanhedrin, the tractate that deals with all the laws of jurisprudence, those who have to go to jail and those who are punished for their crimes, tells us specifically that in Judaism, if we kill a human being, our punishment is death. And the death is usually stoning. And stoning is not what you think. You don't throw stones at the people. You take a person to a cliff and you throw him at the stones, and it's instant death. The Talmud also tells us something fascinating. That of all the cases ever presented to the great court called the Sanhedrin, there never was a case of capital punishment that was seen through to the end. Meaning we might have known someone who committed this crime, but we always look to exonerate him or her from the wrong that they did. The rabbis asked the question, why? Why should we exonerate someone if they committed murder? The punishment is obvious. It tells us an eye for an eye. They should die. They should be stoned. They should go to the cliff and they should be thrown off. So why does Judaism spend so much time trying to get this person off the hook? And the answer is simple. It's because when you take a person after they've committed such a crime to death, they don't sit on death row for years and years with moments of clemency and times for appeal. After the jury comes back with the verdict, they are taken right to the cliff and they die. And while it's true that we exact a form of punishment, they never are afforded an opportunity to seek forgiveness. They never are afforded an opportunity to ask for tshuva, to ask for repentance. And for that reason, and that reason only, we are told that we do not look to fulfill the retaliation of an eye for an eye for capital punishment because we never give the permission for people who've done wrong to make something right. I heard a great line the other day. It was spoken in the context of Ferguson. And it said, in any place where we have an eye for an eye, the world will quickly go blind. In any place where we have an eye for an eye, the world will quickly go blind. I have a friend who I met through a member of this congregation. Her name is Binta Brown. She is an attorney and a leader in the community. She went to Barnard College, and she is quite articulate, bright. Just for the purpose of your identification of context, what I'm sharing with you, although it has no value whatsoever, Binta is African-American, and obviously her father, William Brown, is also African-American. And he wrote an open letter to Parker Rice, who was one of the two boys at Oklahoma University who did this horrible act and was subsequently expelled. And with Binta's permission and her father's permission, I'd like to share this with you. It's a very powerful reading. She wrote... 
My father, who grew up during a very challenging time of segregation and inequality, but was never limited by legalized segregation and pernicious degrading or Jim Crow and other racism laws, is without exception a model of loving forgiveness. If more of us were like him, we'd have a better world. And this is what Mr. Brown wrote. To Parker Rice, former SAE member at University of Oklahoma and co-leader of the racist chant that got you thrown out of school. We don't know one another. We've never met. We are separated by years, distance, and race, but we have a lot more in common than you might think. We apparently are both Catholics, reared and educated in Catholic schools. You're a Jesuit, and I'm a Josephite. I was lucky. I was lucky because none of my dumb mistakes as a young man got me into the kind of trouble that you find yourself in now, but I had them. I was able to go on to Xavier University in New Orleans and then to graduate for Columbia University School of Journalism. I believe, Parker, that you should be forgiven for your misdeed, for which you have publicly and admirably apologized, and you should be allowed to continue your education. Parker, he continues, we all make dumb mistakes. Don't let this one define you. You are a Jesuit educated young man. That means something. That's probably why you accepted responsibility for your actions and publicly and straightforwardly apologized instead of allowing your parents to do it for you. Thank you for that. I don't hate you, Parker. Not any more than I truly believe you hate me or all the people you called the N-word. You are a Jesuit. I am a Josephite. We both know what that means. We're children of the same liturgy. Let us move forward. Good luck to you, son. When I read this letter, as I read it to you now as well, a chill went up my spine of the human power of forgiveness. I thought of that power that must have happened at giving that small envelope for someone to learn from their horrible misdeed that should never be celebrated, should never necessarily be totally forgotten, but able to be forgiven for. That is a gift. In the Parsha we read today of Parshat Para, if you come in contact with the dead, you have to slaughter this red heifer and use its blood to purify yourself. It's a simple recipe that tells us that when we find ourselves in situations that we've done wrong, there's a recipe to make it right. And in Judaism, we know when we've transgressed between us and our neighbor, between us and ourselves, or between us and God, the recipe is to ask for forgiveness. It's not complicated. It's not detailed. It's really straightforward. We go to our brother or sister, we go to our friend or our neighbor, and we say, I'm sorry for what I did. It was thoughtless of me. It was irresponsible of me. And I seek your forgiveness. There are no excuses, like everyone else was doing it, or I learned it from somewhere else, or alcohol is what affected my brain. It's just a plain and simple apology. And each person has three times to make it right. Three times. And if they don't, the onus is on them. And for God, it's only one time. Because we are told that God is full of compassion, all-knowing and understanding. And God gives us forgiveness. But if we live in a world without erasers, and we live in a world that doesn't allow for forgiveness for all of us, then what do we need Yom Kippur for? What's the purpose of the liturgy that we say three times a day? Salah lanu avinu, that seeks out forgiveness from God 
and from our neighbors. We all are wearing yarmulkes in our life. There are very few of us that can walk down any road and have total anonymity. And today, if all of us have smartphones, and all of us have video cameras, and all of us have access to social media, where we are capturing the behaviors of others and judging the behaviors of others, which usurps the role of God and puts it into our hands, then we have a responsibility. It's very simple. If we're going to be the role of God, then we have to judge like God would. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have high expectations for us. It doesn't mean that God can't be disappointed in us because I'm sure that the God of Parker Rice has high expectations for him and is wildly disappointed in his racism and his bigotry. But it also reminds us that we grow and we learn from our mistakes. And that is the core of what it is to be Jewish. Let us live our lives every day with literal or with figurative yarmulkes on our head so that it governs our behavior. And in those moments when we forget about it or the placard falls off from our chest and we are captured in a moment of doing wrong, which makes us all human, let us be godlike in our forgiveness because then we all can move forward in understanding and making the world better from learning from our mistakes.